right, so we're looking at snapshots of Jesus. I'm specifically looking at it to inform our worldview. Does anyone besides me have a worldview on how you see the world and how it relates? Okay, you do. You do. Good. Okay, the ones that raise their hands are the ones that are aware of it. Everybody else, you have a worldview. Apparently, you're just ignorant of it. (laughs) You have no idea. So let me help you. Give a little definition here. Worldview, this is um, a very vague, just general definition of worldview, but it'll help you see where I'm coming from and where we're going for today's class. It is an understanding of the world that informs one's fundamental, which means your just basic beliefs and assumptions, which build a framework of ideas and attitudes about the world and how it works. So now, does anyone else besides me and a few others have a worldview? There you go. Everybody does. So the worldview is basically how you view the world. And it is informed at least by your upbringing, by your traditions, your culture. Uh, Several things speak to it. As you grow up and you go to college, all of a sudden, if you went to college, all of a sudden you are inundated with people from other worldviews. And you hear things and you begin to maybe change, make some changes. Like, I didn't realize that. That's a good point to, to bear in mind as I live my life. I need to be more gracious to those people or I need to be less gracious to those people. Whatever it is based on how you understand the world and then it's constantly changing. You're constantly making adjustments and arrangements in order to have what you would think is the best worldview possible. Some of the best arguments you can have are with somebody else who has a different worldview and you're trying to convince them what? that your worldview is better. Vis-a-vis Jesus Christ, he comes to this earth and he is having to change everyone's worldview who wants to follow him and be a part of the church at large. Does that make sense? Now you can understand why Jesus had such a hard time. You know, Jesus had a lot of problems with people in relationships. And that's why, because he was challenging the way they viewed the world and he was encouraging them, inviting them to come along with him, make a change and do things different. So let's look at that today. Your worldview will answer several different questions. This is just a few of them. These are the basic ones. Number one, what is your prime reality? For a Christian, it would be God. For the agnostic or the atheist, it would be themselves or, or the universe. For the new age, it would be the trees, uh, you know, all these different things. There's, there's a prime reality in everyone's worldview, whether it is yourself or it is something or someone else, but everybody has a prime reality. The second thing, origin. Where do I come from? Have you asked that question before? How many of you asked your parents? <laughs> That was a rough conversation. Number three, your destiny. Where am I going? I know where I've come from. The next question is, where am I going? And it relates to this next one, the purpose of life. Why am I here? That's a fundamental question that everyone, well, almost everyone wants to know. What is my purpose? And sometimes you get off track and you lose that idea of what your purpose is and you feel lost. And you start seeking. Maybe you, if you've not gone to church, you start going to church again. Or uh, if someone knocks on your door and invites you to their group, you, you want to go there. You want to start trying to figure out and understand, well, what is my purpose if you haven't found it yet? And number five, morality. 
in the world, how should you live? How should you relate to others? So our question today is, how do you view the world? It's an important question. Again, everyone already views the world in a certain way. I'm asking you to think about how you view the world because number one, it might surprise you how you view the world. Number two, there might be some adjustments that you need to make. So what types of worldviews are there? There are a lot, and I'm just going to list a few for you right now. Of all of these, do you see the worldview that you most closely associate with? Some of you do, and the rest of you are saying, those words have too many syllables, and I do not know what they mean. <laughs> well, I am not going to uh, define them all. I can tell you that uh, deism, that's you believe there's a God, but he's an impersonal God and just kind of created you and let you go and whatever happens, happens. Um, there's Eastern pantheistic monism. It's kind of a, everything is the same. Everything is one with each other. It's very Eastern philosophy. Um, existentialism and naturalism, they deal with things that exist and naturalism Everything is natural. There's nothing spiritual. What you see is what you get. And after we're gone, that's it. There's nothing left. Uh, These are just some different things. And theism, which is the one that I want to focus in for us today. I'm going to throw the others aside for right now. And we're going to look at theism. And that is probably the one that most of us would conform to if we had a basic understanding of what theism is. In theism, the prime reality is God. There is a God. He's the one true God. He's the creator God, and he is it. Top notch. Number two, the origin. I was created. Where did I come from? I was created by my prime reality, God. Uh, I'm not an accident. I didn't evolve. I didn't come into an understanding later or come into a being. I was created with a purpose by the creator. My destiny The destiny of the prime reality is that I commune with and live with God or I reject God. I have that choice. I believe that there is a God. He's in control. I can choose whether or not to follow him or not. My destiny is based on whether or not I choose to follow or choose to reject and, well, follow a different. Then all of a sudden you're in a different worldview. You can no longer be a theist. Purpose in life. Jesus said it himself. What did he say? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So this is what our purpose is according to what Jesus defined for us. We love God. We love each other. Now, believe me, there is a lot of detail and weeds within each of those. This is a very high overarching understanding of our purpose in life. What is important for us, and that's why we have class, and Mark Lanier comes up here and breaks it all down for us each week, that we have a better understanding of what it is that we're supposed to do in order to actually love God and love each other. We may love each other on some level and realize that God wants us to love each other on a deeper level that's going to cost us more, like having to come to church at 515 and here to go visit other people. That's loving people, but it takes time and sometimes it costs us other things that we're not always willing to give up. And the last thing, morality. God defines morality. What is good and what is bad. And not only that, opposed to some worldviews, you can actually know what is morally good and morally bad. 
Now, even people that, that don't know God and even some that claim that there is no God, a lot of times they still have a sense of morality. They still have a feeling for what is good and what is bad, which breaks down really quickly if you do not believe there's a God. If it's just you making decisions and you feel strongly about, well, you shouldn't actually kill someone. You can get mad at them and maybe beat them down. But, but to kill them, that's, that's morally wrong. You shouldn't do that. Where do these moralities come from? Usually people that are on that other side, they're agnostic or atheistic. They come over to the theist side when they realize their moral uh, understanding of the world helps them to, to see that they do believe there is a God. There's something else that's informing them and a lot of other people, even though we would all disagree to what degree is morally good and morally bad, morally wrong. Uh, so these are things that define a theist. And here are some groups that go along with theism. Christianity. So I think, again, most of you would uh, put yourself in that bucket. Islam is another one. Judaism, Mormonism, and uh, several others that are theists. The question is, who exactly is their God? And then what does their God tell them is good and bad and the way to live life? And what exactly is your purpose? So we call this as a theist and as a Christian, we're going to look specifically at this worldview. So we've got an overarching worldview, and then I've gone down and said even more specifically, let's look at a Christian worldview. I figured that it would be the best for you guys because if, I mean, if you were a bunch of a different group, then you wouldn't even want to pay attention. So I found the group that you would want to pay most attention to so that we can get through this lesson today. Good? You're still trying to decide. Take your time. We have all hour. It's okay. So Let's look at a Christian worldview, and I'm going to throw out a different worldview that is very close to a Christian worldview, and I'm going to call it a biblical worldview. So let me be clear. As a theist, believing on the one true God who created you with purpose and morality, there are several different subgroups that you could be in and, and figure out how, to work, how the world works. For us, we're Christians, and so most of us who've been a Christian for several years, maybe decades, have a general understanding of what Christianity and how that works. I'm going to take it another step and say that I think we have to really be careful because Christians are such a wide, varied term that they believe things across the board. Like some Christians would talk to another Christian and say, wait a minute, you, we're reading the same Bible? You believe that and, and I believe this? And so I want to dive down and see the difference between a Christian worldview and what I'm going to call a biblical worldview. So to be informed, instead of looking at other Christians on how to live life, which we do sometimes, I wanted to look at the Bible and see what the Bible says. And all of you are saying, well, of course, Brent, we're in the biblical literacy class. It's exactly what we do every single week. And you will enjoy the class today. Let me give you a case study. All right. As we're, I'm just right now talking about the difference between a Christian worldview and a biblical worldview. I want to bring you along with me. To, some of you are not quite with me yet. Here's a case study. There's this guy, let's say. Uh, this is not a true story. This is uh, hypothetical. He is not a Christian, did not grow up around spiritual things. His parents didn't take him to church or talk about spiritual things. They were a good people, you know, tried to do the right thing, but had nothing to do with spiritual things. That's just his upbringing. He's grown up. He's now in his late 20s, almost 30s. He's driving along. He's got a family. Uh, He he drives along the road and passes this church several times a week. 
One day, it just kind of strikes him as thinking, you know what? Those church people, I've heard about them, different things about them all my life. Maybe I should find out what's going on. So one day, he walks inside the door of the church. When he walks in, he sees a lot of people. It's before the service has started. So they're all talking. And uh, he probably sees a few clicks, you know, people that when he walks up to them and says, hey, and they're like, oh, hey, you know, we're sorry, we're busy. We're talking to our friends here. (laughs) And other people are very open to him and, well, hello, looks like you're new. I'm glad that you're here. Maybe some people have been assigned to be greeters and their job is to make him feel welcome. So he's doing, uh, checking this out and, and someone is making him feel welcome. He comes in and all of a sudden someone steps up to the microphone and says, let us pray. Everyone finds their seat. They bow their heads. They close their eyes. And what is he doing? He's looking around. He sees them closing their eyes. They're bowing their heads. What does he do? Closes his eyes, bows his head. Because he's just trying to figure out what this is about. They say the prayer, amen. They're talking a little bit and he kind of peeks up. He's like, oh, everyone stopped bowing their heads. I need to jump back up. I wish my friend had tapped me on the shoulder. I'm just, I'm new at this. I'm trying to figure this out. Let's, let's figure out what this Christians are about. So then they sing some songs and as they're singing, people are standing or they're sitting. Somebody raises their hand. Somebody else raises another hand. Next thing you know, the whole group, they're raising their hand. What is he doing? What is he going to do? He's looking around and he's like, okay, (laughs) give God a high five. I'm okay with that. He doesn't know why he's doing it, but he's just doing what everybody else is doing. Why? Because he's being informed by looking around and, and gleaning information from those around him who he assumes know what they're doing. Might be a bad assumption, but that's the assumption. These are the Christians. This is what they do. We get through that part of the service and someone starts speaking a lecture, talking about the Bible. And everyone in this church, they have paper Bibles, like book Bibles, right? They're opening their Bibles. So he's looking around and what is he thinking? I don't have one of those. I need to get one. I wonder if they have one in the pew. Oh, these are music books. That's not it. So uh, he just puts that in the back of his head. No big deal. I'm going to find a Bible later on. Uh, He hears the... The, the, the lecture, the speech, it's encouraging. He, he appreciates that. He, he sees several other people engaged, listening. This is what they do every week. Okay, no wonder they're so happy. They get all this great stuff. I'm listening, I'm paying attention. And at the end of the service, they have an invitation. If anyone would like to join Jesus and be a part of this church, come on down front. And he says, well, what better way to find out what's going on than to just jump right in the middle. So with both feet, he gets up, comes down and uh, talks to the group, ask him to pray a prayer. He gets saved. And now they say, hey, you're welcome to come back every week. We're going to do this every week. And we're going to grow a little bit more in an understanding of what Christians are about. And he says, I think that's great. And though he does. Now, he's a part of the Christians. Now he looks around to all these people. And he starts getting to know them a little bit better. Week after week, he has conversations with different people. And you know what he realizes? These people are really not that different than, than me before I came in. They seem very similar. We have a lot of the same likes, maybe a few dislikes, but it's not that big of a deal. I could get along with these people very easily. That's not a problem. So he does. Keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. Months later, he, he's still apart and having a great time learning how to live the Christian life. And when he's debriefed later after six months, he says, yeah, 
I figured out what Christianity is. We, we go to church every week. We hear a great pep talk. We sing some great songs. And they're really, really good songs. And I really enjoy it. A lot of times they'll invite me to dinner or lunch after church. And so I get to visit with people. We have a few socials from time to time. And, and, and we're all good people. We're doing good things. We even have a couple of projects that help other people. And so he's deduced that this is what Christianity is. Now, does he have a correct picture of Christianity? Okay, some have said no. Some would say yes, but maybe somewhere in between. He's he's going along the path. He just doesn't know everything. If he were to read the Bible, do you think he, if he were to just sit down and say, okay, for the next 90 days, I'm going to do a Bible speed reading thing where you can read the Bible in 90 days. I'm going to read through this and see how close the Christians at this particular church are to what the Bible says, because he's figured out the Bible is the key authority. As he reads the Bible and he, and he, he sees all the things that Jesus says to do, because we're talking about snapshots of Jesus, and then what these Christians are doing based on his observation, would he think that the Christians are more or less biblical? It's hard to say, isn't it? I would say maybe less because we have a lot of traditions and a lot of things that we do that do not really conform to the Bible. And then there are some other things that the Bible says, you should do this, that if we're doing it, nobody knows, which is okay that you can do things privately and and carefully. But at some point, someone just observing and trying to figure out what is this Christian worldview? How does snapshots of Jesus inform it? Would I be surprised hearing about what Jesus said to do and what people are actually doing from an observation level? Does that make sense? See where I'm going with it? I'm not saying that anyone in this church is doing anything wrong. Maybe we just don't have a good way of communicating what we're doing or we're not communicating because maybe we're not doing. Maybe we don't understand. We don't realize what is needed and necessary. And so let's take it to the next level. Let's do what he did. Let's see what God's word says about a Christian worldview. And I want to call it a biblical worldview. What if we had a biblical worldview that will be defined by three snapshots we're going to look at today, which is just a drop in the bucket of all the things that God commands us and wants from us, his people, okay? The first thing is the kingdom of God. Does anyone know what that is? Yep. It's, it's all the things we talk about every week. We hardly use this term, kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is exactly what Jesus came and said, I'm here to reveal to you the kingdom of God. If you understand the, the word kingdom, it means like a realm, uh, a, a citizenry, uh, a citizenship. And in that, God will define exactly how to live every part of your life and what to do when you're sleeping, when you're waking, and everywhere in between. God has an, a, a perfect plan for each person within this kingdom of God with specific things that we are to do. Would we agree? Uh, indeed. We're also going to look at evangelism. How do you get into the kingdom of God? What's your entry point? What's the true way to get into the kingdom of God? And then the last thing we're going to talk about, one of the ways to commune with God within that kingdom of God. So we're going to look at the first one very specifically. That is the kingdom of God. I'm going to take you on a quick history course, which for the biblical literacy class is crazy because Mark has been doing church history for, for years. 
And so I'm just going to do a little bit of a reminder to bring us up to where we are today in regard to the citizenship of heaven, the kingdom of God. First thing, in Genesis 1-1, it begins with God. This is important that we remember this. In the beginning, God. So we don't have any doubt that the kingdom of God has everything to do with God and really has nothing to do with us except for the way that we serve God, which is an important part. In the beginning, God, God created. He filled, he formed, and he made the world, and it was perfect. And then jump a few chapters, and the world fell. And sin entered in, and the perfect world, the kingdom of God, fell and became the kingdom of the world. The prince and power of darkness is now in charge. God is no longer in charge of the world that he created. That's a good storyline for a great movie or a great book. Some of you should read the Bible sometimes. It's great. So moving ahead in this sinful world, God begins to redeem the world by reintroducing this idea of the kingdom of God. This is what I created you for. You got away from it. And now I'm going to show you what it is to be a good citizen in the kingdom of God. So he takes Abraham and he says, you're a part of this group. I'm going to take you and I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to create a nation out of nothing from another nation. And as I do, I'm going to teach the whole world, the nations, how to relate to the one true God, because this is the most important thing in the kingdom of God. And this is how God starts re-educating the world. Thousands of years ago, he takes Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and Abraham looks at him and says, you're going to have a hard time doing this because we can't have kids. And if you want to build a nation, you're going to have to do it another way. And what did God say? In the kingdom of God, I'm in charge. I can do whatever I want to. Rest assured, you will not only have one son, you will have more kids that will outnumber the sands of the shore, the stars in the ocean. And Abraham's going, good luck with that. God said, I don't need luck. I'm God. And off he goes, creating this nation. Then he begins to reveal himself by sending his law. So that's the next thing. Hundreds of years later, we have Moses and God reveals his law to him. Moses reveals it to this nation that has been growing and they're they're millions now. It's a huge nation. And where does God bring them to the promised land? Does anyone know where the promised land is? Yep. It is right in the middle of the world. You know, Mediterranean, the word Mediterranean, it means the middle of the world. That's right there where all the world was. And although Israel is over to the right of the middle of the world, it's right there with all the world around it. And you know what? It's still there today. And God reveals himself. This, these are my laws. This is how to conduct yourself in the kingdom of God. You do this and you don't do that. You will be a good citizen. If you If you don't do what you're supposed to, or you do what you're not supposed to, what's going to happen? It's going to be rough. (laughs) Because number one, the other nations are looking at you, and what are they seeing? Just like the guy who walked into the church and looking at the other Christians. If we're not conducting ourselves in an appropriate and proper way, as citizens of the kingdom of God, Christians as we call ourselves, we're liable to give somebody the wrong impression. And believe me, there's a lot of arguments and problems that have come as a result of people getting the wrong impression of a Christian in our life, which we stand totally opposite of that. We stand to help people 
know who we are and what we do and why we do it and that we belong to someone else and he's in charge and he's perfect and he's good and he's loving. So we should be as well. The law begins to teach that. That's an important part. Now we finally get to Jesus. Jesus now comes and not only takes the law, but he says, I'm going to model how to live life in this world. Okay. Here's the problem. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom, but you have to live it in a broken, fallen world. The two do not mesh. They're polar opposites. And yet God says, you have to be in the world, just not of it. So you have to live like I tell you to live. And you got to do it with all these people who are not living that way. And it'd be easier to look around and see what they're doing and go, uh, I'm just, you know, why, why all the trouble? I'm just going to build in and, and not make any ruckus. Because if I live like the kingdom of God says that I should, I'm going to be making a ruckus. I can't, I can't get around it. And if you don't believe me, ask Jesus. He had problems constantly all because he was saying, folks, you thought this is how to live in the kingdom of the world, but this is how to live in the kingdom of God. He would say things like, I'm going to fill the law full. You've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's Old Testament law. But I've come to say that if, if someone strikes you on the cheek, what should you do? You knock, them in the, you knock them in the head and knock their other cheek off. No, Jesus said, that's what used to be, but now I'm going to complete it. That's, I, I needed to start you there to get you on board. Now I'm going to take you to the next step. If the first step was just, hey, everyone, if someone strikes you in the cheek, you turn the other cheek. They'd be like, oh, I don't know about that. But Jesus said, okay, well, let's start with the Old Testament Torah. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We can all get on board with that. Yes, give it to them. And now Jesus says, I'm going to take you the rest of the way. This is where it gets hard. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for your enemy. Oh, stepping on toes. So this is the kingdom of God. He begins to reveal it in a way that is more understandable and certainly it's going to cause more problems. So all that to say, here's Jesus, a snapshot of Jesus in Luke 17, 20 and 21. Listen to what he says as he is defining the kingdom of God. Here he is modeling his life, how to live in the kingdom of, the, of God while in the world. He's explaining it to everyone. Being asked by the Pharisees, and they were the keepers of the law. They were Torah people and didn't want to change. Jesus is saying, now I need you guys to take a step and move a little bit closer to where I, was try- I want to get you to, into the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, and he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed nor will they say, well, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And Jesus is referring to himself as the king, the chief prime origin of the kingdom of God. Well, he didn't like that, number one. But number two, if Jesus is going to be the king, then I want to see you overflow, overthrow the government that's here and let's take over everyone. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We'll put them on a bunch of crosses and crucify them and we'll show them who's in charge, right, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? No crucifixion except for us. We're going to still be the ones to be crucified and it's going to be an important part of the plan in the kingdom of God. But he makes it a point here that the kingdom of God is not something that you can view or see it is a mental, theoretical, biblical world view. It's how you have to view the world that you're in and conduct yourself, business, relationships, inside of this broken, fallen world. All right? Does that make sense? That's Jesus. And then he says, 
I'm going to create a group. And there was, there was already temples and synagogues. Jesus says, now I'm going to start a group and we're going to call it the church. The Greek word is ekklesia. Uh, Jesus didn't necessarily use it. Uh, he was just bringing people together. We like to put names with things. Ekklesia is the Greek word that we get for church. Do you know what it means? If you don't, this is great. If you do, you've already heard the great thing. If you don't, this is great. Ekklesia means the called out ones. Does that sound like something Christians are called out? Peter says you're called out of darkness into the marvelous light. We are called out. Now, ecclesia is not a Christian term. It was used before Jesus or before the, the Greek Bible ever started using ecclesia. It was used like for senators in Rome. They were a, they were a separate ecclesia. They were called out to represent in the Senate the people of their uh, area or whatever. So ecclesia is a well-known word. It is several ecclesias going on all over, bridge clubs, the Senate, whatever. You are called out to be a part of a particular group. And now the church is taking that word and saying, you though are called out to represent and live according to what you've already been learning and growing. And now you're going to take the next step to be called out to be a Christian, a follower of the way, whatever you want to call it. It's funny to me that we do not have a one official term for people who are in the kingdom of God. We have all these other terms. Um, Christians was first used in Antioch. Uh, several of the disciples and Jesus used the way. Mark talked about it like two weeks ago, I believe. Um, we don't have any official language on this. And that's why it's so hard to talk about, I think, it makes it a little more difficult, but it doesn't take away the fact that the ecclesia are the called out ones to be a part of this particular group you and I know as the church. So there's the overarching church and then there's the local church. You guys are here at Champion Force Baptist Church. We are one of a kajillion ecclesias that we call ourselves the church. If you didn't know that church meant we're called out to be a part of God's rule now you know how to conduct yourselves in the church. You might have just been aloof to it, but now you know, right? So if you're now aware, what must you do in order to be a good citizen of this group called out, the citizens of God? How, how are you going to be a good citizen? What must you do? Only I can remember one person on the front. Who? What? So you have to do what Christ said and follow what he said. And we're all like, yeah, that's obvious. We thought maybe it was a different answer because that was too easy. So in Ecclesia, we have a mission. You see underneath, we have community and we have discipleship where we're teaching, learning and teaching. So that's a part of the Ecclesia. Now, we've talked about the kingdom of God and what that group is. Let's look at our second snapshot and we're going to see how, what is the entry point? How do you get into the kingdom of God? Well, who else better to ask than Jesus himself, right? Because once again, like the term Christian or, or the way or followers of the way, we don't have one easy step-by-step process to become a Christian. The Bible is replete with all of these different things. What does it all mean? Let's look at what Jesus says in Luke 4, 42 through 44. This is just a cursory look at entry into the ecclesia, into the kingdom of God. And when it was day, after a day of healing diseases that Jesus had just done, he departed and went into a desolate place. I guess he needed a break. 
which is good. Sometimes we need breaks. So everyone after this class and after the worship service, take a break, go have lunch, and then come back tonight at 515. We'll get to work again. Okay. He went to a desolate place and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them to heal them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news. That's gospel to you and me. We understand gospel. I must preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent here for this purpose. If you don't know anything about God, one of the best characteristics is that he is a sending God. He sends people to do his bidding and he sent Jesus to do what only Jesus could do to open the door to allow people to come into the kingdom of God through his death, burial, and resurrection. Prior to that important event that's still coming when Jesus is teaching, he says, I was sent for this one purpose, to heal people. Not to heal people. Why did he heal then? Because he had compassion on the people. He wanted to show them what restoration is like in the kingdom of God. So it's not that Jesus is not a healer. He is healing and he does heal. But that's just not his prime purpose. He said, I don't mind doing all these other things, but I have to stick to my mission. And my, the most important thing is what my heavenly father sent me to do. And that is to go into all the other towns and to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Now for you, if you are truly in the kingdom of God, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, and you've gained entry, which we're still talking about, your purpose, the reason that you are being sent as well, is to do the same thing. We're all going to do it in different ways, but we are to go and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. A couple of things are important for that. Number one, you have to be able to express yourself. Okay, that's obvious, and sometimes we have to work on it because not all of us are as good as others. That's fine. We all have different ways to express ourselves, and we can all do that. The second thing is you have to know what is the good news of the kingdom of God in order to share that. If you had to get out a piece of paper right now for a pop quiz, get out your papers, your Scantron sheets, whatever, and the question is, Name five good things of the kingdom of God. Would you be able to list out five or would you make a zero on your test? Because you only have one minute to answer. Could you do it? Don't raise your hands. Okay. We're just thinking today. This is just making us think. We should be able to list out a lot of good things about being in the citizens, being a citizen of the kingdom of God and to express that to someone else so that they would have the option to decide whether or not they want to be a part of that group or not. Better than just walking into church and looking around and seeing what everybody does and going, I can do what they're doing. It doesn't seem much different than what I'm already doing. They go to church a few more times. They say a few more prayers. They sing some songs. They go on a couple of mission projects, which really look fun too. So that's not too different. But if we were to express ourselves and explain what you're doing in the background uh, Monday through Saturday, if you're doing something, that may change whether or not they want to be a part of the citizen being a citizen of God, of the kingdom of God. They may not want to be once they hear what's really involved. Then once again, the best way is for us to just find out what Jesus says. Here is his entry requirements. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Among other things, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, which is the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news. 
What does repent mean? It literally means a change of mind. It's a, it's, it's a, uh, what's it called when you're going one way and you turn to go the other way? You retreat. Yes, you retreat. It is a retreat. It is turning 180 degrees and going the opposite way because God's ways are not our ways. So even though we may think that we're really close to Jesus and we're trying to be good, if you really get to reading, get down to reading what Jesus says to do, we might have to repent. And the first thing is to repent of your sins, the things that you do wrong. And then believe, which also means to trust. Trust in God. So every day I don't worry. Every day I don't worry. Why? Because I'm serving the God who created us. He told me not to worry and he said he's got it. And now even though my world's crashing down around me in this broken, fallen world that should not surprise me, I have a really good attitude. Remember worldview points to my beliefs and my attitudes. My attitude has changed now. I'm not worried as much. And they say, Brent, what happened to you? You know, 10 years ago, you worried about everything, which wasn't really my case. But if they, if they thought that was me and they see me now, I have just shared a testimony of what God's doing because he's changing me and making me into a good citizen of the kingdom of God. I just need to know what that is about. How did Jesus share the gospel? John 3, 8, he tells Nicodemus, how, um, how can a man, oh, he, I'm sorry, he tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Of God And Nicodemus says, how's that possible? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, seriously. He's like, seriously, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Listen as this definition continues. Do not marvel that I said to you that one must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it's coming from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So it is with everyone who is in the kingdom of God. So let's get past all the born again stuff, which is just metaphor for repent and believe, right? And he says it in such a way that makes Nicodemus say, what? Explain it to me better. Jesus gets to this key part of explaining what it is to be a good citizen of the kingdom of God. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit's like the wind, has anyone ever seen the wind? Have you ever seen the wind? It's invisible. Has anyone seen the effects of the wind? Jesus has just explained to Nicodemus, it's not just believing in me and asking me to forgive you of your sins, which can be relatively easy to do on a theoretical point of view. He just, before Nicodemus said yes or no, he just told him, that if you're born of the Spirit, then you're going to be doing things that are going to be amazing. And it will make people angry and mad and make people happy and glad. And everyone, whether they want to follow what you're talking about or not, they will see the effects of you who are now born of the Spirit. Let me ask you this. If the guy off the street came into the church and he looked around at the Christians to see how to behave, if he focused in on you, what effects of God living in you would he be quickly and easily able to recognize? Or are we keeping our mission of God a secret? Or worse yet, are we not conducting ourselves at all to any large degree that we should be as people of the Spirit living and, and creating an effect of what God is doing in our life so obvious that you cannot miss it? Jesus said that is what it is to be born again. 
the, the spirit is moving you and the effects of that are seen just like you can't see the wind, but you definitely see the effects of the wind. And you, you just without even thinking about it, you go, the wind's blowing. Well, why? Well, I saw the wind, the leaves of the trees blowing. Um, I feel it on my face. My hair's really messed up now. It's a lot of problems with that. It's obvious. We've got to be obvious. This is what Jesus is calling us into as citizens of the kingdom of God. And now we're going to wrap up with the last thing. Last picture, snapshot of Jesus, ways that we commune with God. What is the best way to commune with God? Tell me. Prayer. Good job. That's, that's a great way. What's another way? Someone might say worship, but I'm going to say prayer is worship. But maybe coming to church and being with other Christians, that's a great way. Uh, there's a lot of things we could list, ways that we can commune with God. What about reading his word? Just being in the word? How else will we know what the Spirit is telling us to do in order for us to do it and influence others that they can see the effect of the Spirit in our life? That's a big one. But now we're going to commune with God so that we can do it better. That's fair, right? All of us are at different parts of the journey, different points of the journey. We're, we're not all at the same place. We're all growing and learning. Let's commune with God better. So I want to throw out uh, here in this case study that we talked about ways of communing with God. One thing is that if people looked at our lives, they might think that our prayer is just a vending machine, that we go to church and we give tithe and we give money and we uh, are real nice to our neighbors across the street. We might even bake them a, a cake and give it to them sometime and tell them Jesus loves them, something. We're putting money in our vending machine so that later on we can hit A7. And when I pray and ask God for a particular thing that I want, like that raise or um, maybe that car or some of the, some of the things that we, that we do pray for and we're getting it because of these other things. If an outsider looked at our lives, what might they derive at what Christians do? They might just think that we we do enough good things and that God is going to have to give us something in return. When it's not that way at all, it's all about God. And we would all agree with that. Has nothing to do with us other than how we serve him. Has everything to do with God. So let's be careful what we pray about. I've I've given you all this statistic before, but I'm going to bring it up because I've done it again. In 2018, I sat down, I added up some prayer requests that come to me from different groups. So a couple of hundred prayer requests. Um, Physical prayer requests are 85% of the, of the requests that we get. 85% are for physical things, which is great. The bad news is that only 13% are spiritual. If we're a church called to be a house of God and a house of prayer, I just think that how much more spiritual things should we be, instead of having so many physical, at least let's even it out 50-50. Fair? Or if that's not fair, let's do 85% spiritual and we'll do 13% physical which is not a bad deal because God says he's going to take care of you anyway. Well, I did it again uh, in January. Grabbed a bunch of uh, prayer requests in 2022. It's down to 82% physical and up 16% in spiritual. Okay, we're making some movement because I've been talking about it since 2018. So I think we're making some, we're coming around, right? Maybe not as fast as we would like. Okay, so I looked in the Bible. So in the New Testament, I looked at every prayer in the New Testament. And I have my data. If you're interested in my my Bible data, send me an email. And I would love to send you my Bible data. How I characterized whether the prayers in the Bible, in the New Testament, are spiritual, physical, or a combination. No joke, 81% were spiritual. Those are the things that the people in the Bible are praying about. Uh, 10% were a combination and 9% were physical. 
It's okay to pray for physical things. I just think that we should be praying more. So prayer is a really big deal. And Jesus told a great parable about prayer. Oh, wait, what's that? Y'all know what that is? What is that? It's a parables, parable. Yeah, so, so Jesus, Jesus told some parables and I hope this really hits you hard. Persistence in prayer, all right? It's one of my favorite parables of Jesus. And he's talking about, should we be persistent in prayer? Vis-a-vis, there's one thing that we're praying for and then we're just so focused on it, we just keep praying for that over and over and over. We're gonna keep praying for that to be persistent until God finally gives it to us. That's the idea around persistence in prayer. Let's read the parable and see what God actually said in the uh, seven minutes we have left before we close out today. Here in Luke 18 is where that parable is located. I'll read it to you. And he told them a parable. And he even told them what the effect was that they should get as a result of hearing the parable. He said, they ought to always pray and to not lose heart. You might hear a little persistence in there. Amen. And he said, here's his parable. In a certain city, there was a judge who was neither feared God, he neither respected man. So he was a jerk and selfish. But he says, Jesus, this is Jesus telling the story. He's making up the parameters. And there was a widow in the city, second character. There was a widow in the city that kept coming to him and she said, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, the judge refused. But afterwards, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God and I do not respect man, Yet because of this widow that she keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down anymore by continually coming to me and asking for the same thing over and over and over and over. I added some of those overs. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. He said, did you hear what the judge said? Because I was sick of her bothering me, I gave her what she wanted. That's an interesting point because we're gonna make the parallel in this parable right now. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? A little persistence there. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily, quickly. And he says he won't delay. So let's look at this parable. So why am I talking about this? Parables are heavenly stories with earthly meanings and the Bible is full of them. Jesus would say something like, hear this parable to learn about the kingdom of God. Or he would say the kingdom of God is like this and he would tell a parable. So it's important that we understand how to understand parables, right? So here's this one. Here's an example of this parable that Jesus told. And he said, here's the judge. The judge is a horrible guy. And he gives in when it's just, it's his best interest and he's just bothered. Compare that in in the heavenly meaning, the the judge would be God, right? Now, is Jesus saying that judge is just a selfish old man who, when he, when you finally beat him down, he gives you what you want? Does that sound like the God that you read about in the Bible? So maybe instead of a parallel, it's a contrast, Just like the evil judge, it has to be beat down to give something that's good and right, justice. On the other hand, your heavenly father loves you, cares for you. He wants the best for you. You don't have to beat him down. If you have to beat down the other guy, what about the guy that loves you? He's gonna be giving to you and Jesus even defines how he's gonna give to you. 
You don't have to be persistent in your prayers to get that one particular thing by just begging and telling God, I'm just going to keep saying it until you finally give it to me. And God says, why would I give you what's not in my will? You haven't gotten it yet. You're probably not going to get it. Could be a scenario in that prayer situation. The point is, what does Jesus say? Will God delay long over his answer? The, the preferred answer is, is no. The, the, when they read this, they would, they would read, no, that would not be the case. And then he just lays it out. I tell you, will he give justice? He will give justice to them speedily. God is quick to respond. But sometimes if we don't hear what he's saying, we might think he's not answering. And we might get a little angry. But instead of saying so focused on what it is that we're trying to get and God's not giving it after months and years, it's not that you should never pray for it. It's not that, but what it is is that God says you are so distracted on what you want that you're missing the 10,000 other things that I'm trying to give you and get you to do because I've got a purpose and I've got a will and I've got a reason. And that is how you can be a good citizen in the kingdom of God. You can be in my word and instead of looking around at all the other Christians and doing what they're doing, let's just cut to the chase and get right to the source. Let's read God's word and see what it says. And now let's have an understanding of what it means. Well, I don't understand everything it says. In fact, even the disciples didn't understand Brent. They had to ask and Jesus had to come back and say, okay, this is what the parable means. That's what Jesus does for you and me. And sometimes we have to work through it. Those disciples had to work through getting to the point that they're like, I just don't get it. Jesus said, perfect. I've got you right where I need you because now I can tell you and move you on from where you are. You're paying attention to me now and I can move you to where I need you to be. This persistent prayer is just one example. In fact, the answer is not persistence in prayer. It is consistence in prayer. God wants us to pray constantly, but not about the same thing persistently. There's a difference. But we walk away from a lot of reading God's word thinking that we're supposed to pray until God gives it because it's a good thing and, it, and he, he, owes it, he owes it to us, right? So that's just one example of reading God's word and coming to a false conclusion and thinking, you know what? I don't know why that makes sense, but that's what it says I'm just going to do. Let's dive down deeper. Thank you for Mark Lanier who comes out each week and helps to break down exactly what God's word says so that any misconceptions might be set aside for what God is really doing. You may argue with me a little bit. Well, God tells me I should be persistent on this one particular thing. And if he does, then I can't argue with God. So please definitely continue. But I want to look here where Jesus said, Matthew 26, another snapshot of Jesus. Was Jesus persistent when he prayed in the garden for the cup to pass and God's will be done? He did pray three times, but he didn't spend a whole week and a couple of months before that trying to get on God's side and get God on his side because he ended up every time with God, your will be done. He only asked three times. Speaking of three, reminds me of Paul who had the thorn in his flesh. These are just some of the classics, so it's easy to talk about. But he asked three times that God would remove the thorn that was hurting Paul. And what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. You do not need me to take that away. In fact, I'm gonna leave it there so that you can be humbled and remember who I am. And Paul's like, I get it. I know who you are. Take the thorn. And God said, no, you will have it. Did Paul pray about it anymore? Paul got it. He understood it's not going to be removed. And so he stopped praying. He was not persistent, but did God, I mean, did Paul consistently pray about everything? Read through all of his, of his books. He's praying for spiritual things. 
This is the one physical thing that he really has as a prayer request. He's praying for spiritual things and for other people. He gets it. This kingdom of God is not about me. It's about how I serve the other people that are in the world to bring them into the kingdom of the world by living by the spirit and the wake of all the effects of what I am doing purposefully and intentionally for the glory of God is being seen by everyone. Well, you sure are a pompous guy, not very humble to make sure everyone knows what you're doing. I don't make the rules. I just teach what God's word says. We need to be people that are letting the spirit move us. And in that wake, people see what God is doing and they want to be a part, even though it has nothing to do with the way they look around and see what they assume other Christians are doing. It has everything to do with how they're reading God's word and his spirit is communing with them and teaching them and growing them. It changes their life, changes their prayer life. It changes their worship life, changes their attitude, their beliefs, and their worldview now becomes something that they would have never imagined that they would start thinking the world should work this way when they were very comfortable with the way the world worked in their past and by traditions. I say all that because these are some fantastic snapshots of Jesus to guide us to where we need to go if and only if you are in the kingdom of God and you're a part of God's purposes. Our Heavenly Father, for those of us who are in your kingdom, we're at different places in the journey and that is fine. We ask you to move us to that next step, that next stage, that next opportunity because we have no less days to sing your praise. We have no more time to waste. We must seek your will and do it because the time is short and the days are evil. We see it in the news every day. We know things are bad and things are gonna get worse and our time on this earth is less and less. We only have an opportunity a short opportunity to influence those around us. Help us not to be influencing them the wrong way by our bad conversations, our passions that are not of you. Help us to focus in on you. And those in this room who do not know you in a personal way, they've not yet made entry into the kingdom of God, I pray that we represent you well so that they not only want to come as you are leading them and guiding them, but that we can take them right to where you are, right to where you lead, and that in our wake, you will be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name, because he lives. Amen. Thank you.